Welcome to Podship Perth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. For polyester, oh, it's made of oil. L, I love it dearly. Why? Because you don't have to iron it. E, easy to care for. S, yes, a little bit sweaty. T. This week we're talking polyester. Well, not just polyester, but any synthetic fabric from nylon to rayon to spandex, all the way through to polypropylene. It all began back in the 1940s in a DuPont lab. Today and for the years to come, the world looks for better things for better living through chemistry, the science that has played a major part in the perfection of practically everything we use, the science that has carried us beyond the machine age on into a world of new materials that are not found in nature. The production of synthetic materials started slow, and then... Came the 70s. All based on one very special pair of pants. In style, they're a classic, but they're made of the latest thing, woven, texturized polyester. The price? Just $13. You could even afford to start all over with these extraordinary pants. Those same JCPenney polyester bell-bottoms are still available for $13 from Goodwill on Haight Street in San Francisco. And if you rush, you can use them as part of a scary Halloween costume. Many people thought that synthetic materials had reached their peak in the 1970s. But it turns out it was just the beginning. Because I only want to wear my yoga pants. Yoga pants. Yoga, yoga, yoga pants. Yoga Today, everything from yoga pants to running shorts to fleece jackets to you name it is made from plastic fibers. Here's Roland Geyer, professor of industrial ecology with the University of California, Santa Barbara, Bren School of Environmental Science and Management. It's important to remember that plastic and synthetic fibers are really only 65, 67 years old. So our grandparents, all they ever were, uh, wore were um, natural fibers, clothing made from natural fibers, and now... Uh, it, it has almost reversed. So in 2016, um, over 50% of the fibers uh, produced worldwide were actually synthetic fibers. And in, uh, experts think that in the future, it, it'll gain an even larger market share. About six years ago, with a global team of experts, we tried to quantify how much plastics enters the ocean in a given year. At the same time, uh, increasingly, um, microfibers also showed up in sediment samples, uh, particularly, and on the beaches. Um, so uh, now we actually uh, decided that we want to study synthetic fibers, so uh, fibers made from plastic in particular, uh, in order to quantify exactly how much we make, how we use them, and how much end up in the oceans. Uh, every year. So there's a lot of research that needs to be done. And so we're just trying to, to add to that um, by just doing what, what is uh, called a material flow analysis. So really uh, follow uh, fiber production all the way through, through the use phase, or hopefully quantify, estimate what happens to those fibers. What's the biggest surprise that you found in your research? 
Well, in, in terms of research on plastics, uh, my biggest surprise is just uh, the, the, the sheer quantity, the sheer amount that, of plastics we produce. And then once I started researching fibers, uh, synthetic fibers, the sheer amount of synthetic fibers and also the growth rate. It's not just that we're making incredible amounts already, but we uh, also, uh, this amount just grow, keeps growing year over year over year. Has it affected your own life doing this research? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a label obsessive. I mean, my family makes fun of, of me. I, I, I read labels like others' novels. Um, I'm obsessed with the, you know, what, what they say and what I can learn from it. All fibers, even uh, including natural fibers, they have their own um, environmental issues like water use, like land use, other pollution issues with over-fertilization. It's not as simple as simply saying, I'll just switch fiber or I simply switch brand and problem is solved. Turns out that when we throw our dirty fleece into the washing machine, we're shedding more than our clothes. You might not know it, but in each load, your clothes release hundreds of thousands of tiny fabric fibres, many of which contain plastic. From the dirty washing water, they soon get into the environment, poisoning our waterways and the food chain. In the US alone, our washing machines are releasing up to 750,000 pounds of microfibres each day into rivers, lakes and the ocean. And if that isn't cause enough for concern... It's a wild finding that there's something sinister hiding in your drinking water. Microscopic plastic fibers. A study by the data journalism website Orb Media found plastic in 94% of the water that it tested in the United States. Microplastics have been shown to absorb toxic chemicals that are linked to cancer. Then they release them when consumed by fish or humans. In case you're jumping up to buy emergency supplies of bottled water, the same study found that plastic fibers were in 93% of bottled water produced by 11 of the world's largest brands. These pesky, tiny plastic fibers have been found in 73% of fish caught in the Northwest Atlantic, in beaches around the world, and even in Arctic ice. And here's where it gets even more personal. The average person ingests over 5,800 particles of synthetic debris each year, most of which are plastic fibers. In order to understand what the hell's going on and what we can do about it, I start by talking with Rachel Lincoln Sarnoff, who was the executive director of Five Gyres, an organization fighting against the global plastic pollution crisis. Rachel also founded and hosts mommygreenest.com, a resource for healthier living and less judgment. Rachel also is working with the California Coastkeeper Alliance on a campaign to tackle microfiber pollution. first time I heard about microfiber pollution, it scared the hell out of me because I realized that there was plastic coming from my clothes into the water that potentially I was drinking. Um, and then through my work with Five Gyres, we went really deep into that issue and, um, and that got even more terrifying. What does going deep into that issue mean? So we worked on a study with the San Francisco Estuary Institute to really look at what was coming out of wastewater in San Francisco. What was coming out was plastic microfiber pollution. So I had known that there was a problem, but I didn't really understand the extent of it. And just to kind of put it in perspective, one sample took them 40 hours to analyze. That's how many tiny, tiny, tiny pieces of microfibers were in that sample. I think the, the results of the study, which still hasn't come out, will be really impactful. Why would it take 40 hours to do one sample? 
So uh, I think oftentimes when we think about science, we think about it in labs with super powered Jimmy Neutron microscopes, right? And the truth is that often it's just someone who's actually physically using a microscope, counting the number of fibers in a sample. And that's what really took so long. And it took so long because there were so many. Now there's a whole new thing, plastic fibers that are in everything from drinking water to San Francisco Bay. Like it just feels overwhelming. I think it absolutely feels overwhelming. But I think that it's even more important that we figure this out. It's not just one type of plastic that we need to be aware of. It's, it's all plastic. It's how we view plastic. It's how plastic has become this, um, this ubiquitous substance that makes up our entire lives and that we view as disposable. So we need to look at it in that frame, and I don't think we're doing that yet. The Gap, H&M, Walmart, Costco, like there's tons of brands out there that don't seem to care about this. Like how can consumers push them to care more. Well, and I don't think we can say that those brands don't care. I think we have to um, encourage brands to own it like Patagonia has. You know, Patagonia had an opportunity to take a study that showed that their fleece was shedding plastic particles into the water table, and they could have buried that study. But instead, they chose to use it as part of their sustainability platform and their profile. And I think that's brilliant. Are we um, smarter because of Patagonia's study and how they shared it? If we can make the case to other manufacturers that this is the right way to go, then they will follow suit. To find out the backstory behind what Patagonia is doing, I go to their headquarters in Ventura, California to meet with Alyssa Foster, who is the senior manager of Patagonia's product responsibility division. Patagonia sells sustainable outdoor clothing. The company was founded by Yvonne Chenard in 1973. In 1996, the company began sourcing only organically grown cotton. In 2016, Patagonia adopted a set of wool principles that guide the treatment of animals as well as land use practices and sustainability. Patagonia commits 1% of its total sales or 10% of its profits, whichever is more, to environmental groups. Patagonia is a certified B Corporation. These are businesses that meet the highest standards of verified social environmental performance, public transparency, and legal accountability to balance profit and purpose. I start by asking Alyssa when she first heard about the microfiber issue. In 2011, a researcher came out with a paper um, showing that they were finding these fibers all over um, coastlines and then linked the fibers back to washing machines and garments and home laundering. Um, and that was 2011. And the researcher was actually doing a um, research fellowship in Santa Barbara. So I got to meet with him. Um, and at the time, it was just this new issue that no one was really that familiar with. Oh, and it just didn't get a lot of traction. Um, and then fast forward about three years, and there was an article that came out that was calling out some specific uh, apparel brands around the microfiber issue. And then we've been involved ever since. A lot of businesses, when they get bad news about their products, like fossil fuel companies and climate change, simply try and hide the truth. With Patagonia, you did the complete opposite. Patagonia has a really long history of caring for the environment. And also along the way of doing our business, we come across these various issues that show that what our business is doing might be causing environmental harm. And, and when we learn about those issues, what we do is then we 
look into them from a very logical and scientific perspective, and then try and find ways to solve that problem and address the issue. And um, our switch to organic cotton is a really great example of that. In the mid-90s, we learned that conventional cotton was connected to overuse of pesticides and fertilizers causing harm to workers, the environment, waterways, and we looked into it and looked for a solution there and we found organic cotton. And this is, this is that again, we knew if it was connected to our products, we had to understand it. And the more we've dug into this issue, the more we've learned about it and the more we've learned it's a much broader issue than um, just a specific type of apparel garment. Tell us about shedding, namely how many microfibers fall off different types of clothes in different settings. We have learned um, that all these garments that we wear every day shed. It doesn't matter what they're made of. They're all shedding. Um, And there are different points along the way where we can work to minimize that shedding. And um, we hope to engage with our fellow colleagues at other brands, and then also with our customers to implement solutions. So at what point did you go to management and say, we need to fund a study to really look at how much is shedding? And we pitched it to the leadership and they were on board. They were like, yeah, we need to learn more about that. And this is a really good way to do that. And what did you find out? We learned through lots of washing that indeed a lot of all of the garments we're washing, um, whether they were Patagonia garments or other garments that we purchased from outside, we're all shedding. And then, you know, we looked at the dryer and the lint trap in the dryer, and you collect all that lint after you dry a load of laundry. And basically, that's quite similar to what's happening in the washing um, phase of home laundering. And were there any characteristics that you were kind of surprised at in terms of what things shed at what levels? I think we assumed that... um, fleece products, they had become sort of the poster child for this issue. And we found that they aren't any worse than other garments that are out there. How are you looking at solutions? So one place to start is, of course, the manufacturing of the garment. And that's, I think, where Patagonia really has a lot of expertise and opportunity to minimize the shedding. And we're going to be looking into different things like yarn construction and fabric construction, fabric coatings, the different processes that fabric goes through before it's um, made into a finished garment to identify ways to minimize shedding. Um, The next step is for consumers really to understand what they're buying and what their clothes are made of and if they're buying products that are of a high quality that are going to last a long time. The next step once you buy that garment is to really think about how you're washing it. And there's an opportunity always to wash less We found that front load machines shed less than top load machines. We've also found that there are a lot of aftermarket filters that are available out there for consumers to purchase that they can use to filter the washing machine effluent before it enters into our wastewater treatment plants. And so there's opportunities at that home laundering phase to minimize shedding. The next step is when it gets to the wastewater treatment plant, and that is... At a municipal level, not a lot of individual uh, control over that specific phase in the life cycle, but it's key nonetheless to think about because there's a lot of opportunity to capture the fibers while they're capturing um, sludge and any other waste products that are going in, coming out of our homes and into wastewater treatment. And so there could be an opportunity there. And then the last piece is once it gets into the ocean to really understand what kind of harm the fibers might be causing where they're settling, where they're um, staying in the water column, and what are opportunities for us to uh, minimize the harmful fibers that are entering the environment.
you're looking at developing a sheddability standard. What does that mean? So we've created a very efficient shed test that we can do at Patagonia's fabric lab where we test all the fabrics before we put them in product. And what we're hoping is that by testing and comparing a certain fabric to another one that might have a different finish process to it or a different yarn construction, we'll be able to identify what results in more shedding, what results in less shedding. Once we do that on a number of fabrics, we'll start to understand what that range is of shedding from garments and start to understand like what is a very great and low shed rate and then what is maybe a very high shed rate that we're hoping to reduce. So we're at the very early stages of it and um, expect to be learning a lot in the upcoming months. So even when we are capturing at the wastewater treatment plant microfibers, often those uh, land applied. Tell us a little bit about that. What we've learned from research at wastewater treatment plants is that they're actually capturing quite a bit of the fibers that are entering uh, their system. And they capture that in the sludge that they're retaining and not releasing into the environment in waterways. And that sludge can, there's a lot of different things that can be done from with it. But what we've learned in California is that often that sludge is applied to agriculture and not human food agriculture, but other forms of agriculture. And the concern there is that if we've done such a great job of capturing all these fibers in the sludge, and then we go lay it out on the open land, uh, we don't then know what happens. Does it sink into the soil? Could it have any effects on plants? Or is it going to run off again back into the ocean when it rains or when the land is irrigated? You're an infinitesimally small part of the world garment industry. There's millions and millions of garments being produced every year that aren't Patagonia. How do we encourage those brands to get more involved in this dialogue? Um, we are small in the whole scheme of things, but I will say that this conversation I've been having with many of my peers at other brands and the outdoor industry has been very engaged in this. We're partnering on research with REI and Arcteryx and MEC. I know this conversation has been brought to the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, which is a coalition of apparel brands beyond the outdoor industry um, that want to be more environmentally and socially responsible. And so this dialogue is happening there as well. And so I do think that there are a lot of companies that are thinking about this and engaging in the conversation. And there's a lot of opportunity to get more brands engaged. And I know that other brands are already engaged. So it makes me hopeful that as an, as an industry, as in a larger apparel industry, we'll be working on this together. Um, it's been quite the journey, I have to say. The voluntary efforts undertaken by Patagonia go well beyond what the rest of the $214 billion apparel industry is doing on this critical issue. As a result, environmental groups like Californians Against Waste, The Story of Stuff, and Surfrider are pushing for legislation. I meet up with Melissa Romero with Californians Against Waste. The group was founded in 1977 and is one of the nation's most effective nonprofits advocating for the implementation of waste reduction and recycling policies. Melissa received her BA in Environmental Science and Policy at Cal State University, Long Beach, where she worked with the university's Zero Waste Task Force. Melissa, how did your organization get involved in this issue? I first heard about microfiber pollution after researching textile waste. And so we decided that this issue made a lot of sense 
to begin to tackle. So you're an environmental lobbyist in Sacramento, California State Capitol. I thought lobbyists were the bad guys. Yeah, I think I definitely also had that negative connotation of what a lobbyist was before starting this job. I always assumed that lobbyists meant industry-related issues. And starting my job, I realized there are lobbyists for everything, like everything you could possibly think of. I'm really proud to be able to represent Californians Against Waste and work on issues that I really care about. So yeah, it's definitely a really cool place to be. I feel like I'm in a position where I can help make the most change that I can actually see happen and unfold in front of me, which is why I'm sticking around and why I'm having so much fun in this position. So this year you helped sponsor a few pieces of proposed legislation on microfibers. So the microfiber bill that we uh, helped support this year would have required all clothing that is predominantly polyester material, so 50% or more polyester, would have been required to be labeled so that consumers could read something on the tag that says this garment sheds plastic microfibers when washed and, you know, trying to give people some sort of short-term solution like hand washing or just hopefully steering consumers to more natural products. So it was really focused on consumer education and it was really a way for us to start the conversation about microfiber pollution in the legislature. And why did you think that was a good place to start? It made the most sense to start as far upstream as possible with this issue because it really is at the core, it is an issue with the actual textiles that we're using. And there has been a lot more polyester and synthetic materials used in the recent years and it's growing exponentially. And so it made the most sense to start with the target, so to speak, being the manufacturer of the product. Why it's important to hold manufacturers responsible first. It's really important to hold manufacturers responsible to some extent because they're the ones that are causing this issue, which is microfiber pollution at the source. And if we don't focus on them at all and just focus on people paying for it at the wastewater treatment level or at only the washing machine level, it really doesn't put the onus on the right entity and In this case, when we focus on the manufacturers, that's really where we can make the most change and the most difference in terms of source reduction of the problem. And that that seems like true of waste issues generally. If we only worked on, you know, litter cleanup, for example, litter abatement, then we wouldn't actually be stopping the problem at the source. We would just be making it okay and making ourselves feel a little bit better about causing the pollution in the first place. So what happened to the bill? Was it successful? So the bill was successful in the way that we were able to start the conversation. A lot of members of the legislature are now aware of the issue and as are their staff, which is really, really important to move forward. We did get some press coverage on the issue, which was important for consumer education. Even though the bill didn't end up passing, it did get to go through two policy committees and ultimately did not make it to a vote on the assembly floor but it did make it to that point to where we were able to have conversations with all of the assembly members. So it was a really great educational opportunity. Your organization has worked on many landmark laws like banning plastic bags in California. Did they take a long time to pass? So all of those issues were definitely multi-year efforts. And a lot of that has to do with just creating a space for stakeholders to come together 
to come to a conclusion that everyone can agree on. For plastic bags, it took about a decade, and it was a decade of local governments taking action with local ordinances and, and bag bans. California Governor Jerry Brown just signed a law requiring restaurants only give out straws if requested. This straw law really captured the public imagination. With the straws, it was something that was easy to grasp and understand and also something that everyone could relate to and could take action on. So it really was a way to open up the conversation about the larger problem of plastic pollution, which was positive because now we have a lot more people talking about it. And a lot of those articles that talk about plastic straws are also touching on the more broad issue of recycling and plastic pollution in general. So it's been positive in that way. How are you dealing with the deluge of plastic in your own life? It really is difficult in the world that we live in today to avoid plastic and to you know, avoid the types of plastic that right now in some areas aren't being recycled anymore. And so it really is going to take a lot of source reduction and a lot of private companies taking, you know, actions on these issues because it is a really big challenge for an individual to actually take on living a plastic-free life because it's really just shoved in our faces every day. And it's part of so many activities that we all want to participate in. People looking at California, like, see, there's a large majority of Democrats. They would just think, you know what, this stuff must just be easy to pass. A lot of times it's difficult for some Democrats to vote on things because they represent areas where an industry makes up some of their jobs. And, you know, those are all valid points. But it really is about weighing the pros and the cons of some of these things. Does it really make, you know, a whole lot of difference and benefit to society to have 10 people working at a trash incinerator versus actually recycling that material and not polluting the community that that trash incinerator is cited in. So it really is, you know, helping those legislators try and see the pros and cons, but sometimes the more moderate members tend to see the industry side a lot easier. Is it going to come back at the next legislative session? I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. It really is a very large issue with a lot of points of, of intersection with different industries. There's a huge opportunity to make change in all of those different areas, but it also makes it very complicated because there are so many different ways to tackle this. And microfiber pollution is such a huge problem in terms of the actual volume of microfibers being released into the environment. Governor Jerry Brown just signed another law requiring the Ocean Protection Council develop a strategy for tackling microfibers. What can listeners do at the local level to keep up the pressure? So what you could do at the local level is encourage your local elected officials to pass local ordinances that tackle microfibers. You can call your representatives every time there's a vote happening about microfibers. Back with Rachel Lincoln-Sarnoff, I find out that she's just about to install a filter on her washing machine at home. When I first learned about the problem with microfibers, I wanted to know what I could do about it. I can hand wash. I can wash less. I can't get a new washing machine because I can't afford it right now. But I can put on a filter, which will capture a lot of those microfibers. Um, so that is where I am with my personal solution. You know, I think that there are bigger picture solutions that I still am pushing for and really we all need to think about. But in the meantime, what can we all do as individuals? You know, a filter for microfibers is one of those things. What are the bigger picture solutions that you're pushing for? 
there's been a lot of passing the buck with this issue. You want washing machines that, just like dryers, have some sort of capture mechanism, so you're grabbing those microfibers and you're um, able to take them out of that filter and put it into the trash. So do you think 10 years from now all washing machines will have microfiber pollution filters built into them when you buy them? If I have anything to do with it, yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, there was a time when we dried our clothes with dryers that didn't have lint filters. And I looked so hard to try to find legislation that mandated lint filters and dryers, and it just didn't exist. That was a voluntary act that the dryer manufacturers took. Now, they took that act because houses were burning down. Clearly, there's a market advantage to putting a filter in your dryer. So I think our job as advocates is to do the same thing um, when it comes to plastic and when it comes to washing machines. Let's make the case and buy from brands that do the right thing. So what's the next step in getting microplastic filters in every washing machine sold? I think that what we need to show is that proof of concept. We need to show that we can install these, they can work, they can do their job, and they're not going to screw anything up. So that's where I think cities come in. There's tons of laundry being done by municipal, uh, like, prisons and hospitals and, you know, buildings that are supported, that are part of the city infrastructure. If we can install filters there, then we can have our proof of concept to be able to show to the general consumer, look, if this works in a hospital that's doing laundry 24-7, it's going to work in your home where you do three loads a week. Does California have the ability to help move this issue? If we can get some sort of legislation passed in California that mandates that we have filters on our washing machines, just like we have filters on our dryers, then we can make that a reality, not just in California, but in the entire world. You know, I see a world where in 10 years, we are not looking at the volume of, of this problem. You can't capture everything, right? So we also need manufacturers to shift in the way that they're manufacturing. We need consumers to look at their behavior, stop buying and throwing away clothes. Thank you to Roland Geyer, Rachel Lincoln Sarnoff, Alyssa Foster, and Melissa Romero for educating us on the craziness that is polyester microfiber pollution and for helping us think through the solutions. Approximately two out of seven billion people in the world have access to washing machines, leaving 71% who still hand wash their clothes. This number is changing by the day as more people have access to washing machines. While clothing manufacturers are working out how to make clothes that don't shed as much microfibers, we need to up the pressure on washing machine makers to put filters in devices from the get-go. Current estimates suggest that these filters add about $7 to the cost of a new machine. I recently installed an aftermarket filter on my washing machine at home and was stunned at how quickly it filled up with the strands of microplastic. My big takeaway is that microfibers really stink. Next week, we delve into the biggest topic of them all, religion. From concepts of dominion over nature, to the Pope's latest encyclical on climate change, to the meditation practices of the Brahma Kumaris, we discuss how religion may be the planet's last best hope. If you like the podcast and want to support our show, please share Podship Earth with your friends and family. 
Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld, have a great week. And remember that washing your clothes less is now a good thing. <laughs>